So we've basically spent a whole month on the doctrine of the resurrection. And a few weeks ago, I complained about the ascetics of the global church. I said, didn't I, that in terms of architecture and ornaments and furniture and liturgy and music and art and all of the touchy-feely things in church with which we interact, I think that the resurrection is probably one of the most underrepresented aspects of the Christian faith. We have a cross at the front of the church. We don't have an empty tomb. Our buildings, most of them are cruciform. They're not tombiform, with the notable exception of the Catholic Cathedral in Liverpool. I can't think of another one that's shaped like an empty tomb. I wear a cross around my neck. I wonder how many of you have one on today. Quite a few of you, I imagine. No one seems to have a necklace shaped like the stone that rolled away. Well, don't forget that we broadcast our sermons, and between this camera and your screen at home, there is a supercomputer. It transcribes my every word, and then depending on how it's been programmed, it has one of two jobs to do. Either it's looking for ways to make money, or ways to make me look stupid. Within days, Facebook managed both. I saw a commercial with Elizabeth Tabish, that's Mary Magdalene from The Chosen, selling a necklace shaped like an empty tomb. So there you have it. It seems that they do exist after all. Then I read chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, not the last day, the old Jewish Sabbath, but the first day, a new Christian Sabbath. What made them move the day? What made them move church ahead by 24 hours? The answer, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why. So when I said that the church is just a little bit light on commemorating the resurrection, I did actually forget about the day we meet. Turns out the entire worship life of the church is shaped around the empty grave of Jesus Christ. For believers, every week begins with a resurrection mindset. That's what we're talking about today, the resurrection mindset. What does it look like to be a resurrectionist, to have your life shaped by the resurrection in everything that you do? Paul makes nine rapid-fire points about what it looks like in practice. Now, before we get into it, just to help you understand the structure of chapter 16, because it's unusual to get nine points in a few verses, we have to admit chapter 16 does indeed feel just a little bit rushed. I don't know if you had this here, but when I was a child growing up in the UK, if you called from a British payphone just before your money ran out so that you could wrap the conversation up, the phone made a little noise like this. It went pip, 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 pip. We called it the pips. That's what it was known as. So picture the scene with me. You're a 12-year-old boy. You've gone into the village shop to buy a dib-dab, some iron brew and a beano, just the typical things that you can all picture, I'm sure, quite easily. You go to a bright red phone box. You put in a 10-pence piece. It is the exact size of a quarter, if that helps you. You call home, and mum has done all of the talking, and then the pips come. And you're like, mum, 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 listen, quick, 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 listen, listen, be quiet. I'm going to tell you this. Colin Lee has invited me around for dinner. His dad's going to come and get me any minute now. We're going to have sausages for dinner. And then after that, he wants to go to the Radway Cinema in Simmouth. We're going to watch Cliffhanger 2. It's a really clean film. I think you're going to love it, mum. I should be home by click. 
That is a typical British childhood. <laughs> now, we cannot be certain, but many scholars believe that at the very end of chapter 15, Paul was getting the pips. And that's why I think he wrote 2 Corinthians, probably. He called back. Um, if that's not the case, it might well be why he makes nine points in 24 verses. So get ready. Here we go. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, uh, were we <laughs> concerned about that? No, but he's wrapping things up. He's got to rush a little bit. On a Sunday, which is the day of the resurrection, each of you, so we're talking about the whole church gathered in this verse, is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Funny English, but it just means in proportion to how you may have prospered. So, in other words... If you've had a profitable week in your business, give lots. If business was bad, not so much. And the reason why Paul wants all members in all churches, in all places to give all the time is, he says, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Go into the Scooby-Doo time machine a minute and go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Remember the cultural milieu of Corinth. Remember all those traveling rhetoricians and, and hired speakers who would come and give a TED talk in the, in the town square for money. Paul does not want to be accused of being a huckster like them. Neither does he want to be tempted to water down his message in order to keep his income up. He's not preaching for money. There are many churches where pastors feel as though they're preaching for their supper every week, if not actually preaching for their job. I talk to pastors in some denominations who, you know, they know if they preach four or five stinkers in a row, they're going to get fired. And uh, the pressure that many pastors feel when they preach to be excellent and pleasing all the time is quite immense. Do you know the Number one sin for which pastors are dismissed in the United States. Do you know what it is? It's not what you might think. It's plagiarism. Isn't that weird? That pressure to be just really good at preaching. It's a very dangerous place to be, having to please the crowd every week. Dangerous for everyone, not just dangerous for the one doing the, pre the preaching. Uh, the crowd, of course, if they're paying what they like based upon if they hear what they like, uh, is suddenly able to arrange around themselves pastors who will please them and preach only what they want to hear. And I guarantee you that at some point in your Christian life, the word will say something that your pastor does not want to preach or that you do not want to hear. If the resurrection, which is all about submission and transformation and death and new life, is at the very heart of the good news of Jesus Christ, then the word of God inevitably at some point will dismantle your human priorities. It won't accord with the flesh every single week. The word's worldview and the world's worldview are not the same thing. So when pastors preach for money, the danger is that they drift away from the word and that people follow. So, first point, resurrectionists give. 
Now, the pips are going, we've got to move on. It's not just about money. There's a lot of practical things you can do. Resurrectionists serve. Look at verse 6. Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Giving practical help is a huge part of living a resurrection life. In a few hours' time, Dr. Caleb's going to cut my son's hand off, which I've asked him to do, or at least remove his cast. That's what the body does. We look after each other. We have these skills. We have these gifts. We use them for other members of the church. Uh, some of you moved house recently, and uh, I remember um, that, uh, that the church came around, and we cleaned certain homes and boxed things up and drove them uh, in the truck and that kind of thing. Some of you have given birth recently, and the church did a meal train. Several of you have been through a family crisis in recent months. And again, the church came around with food. I've watched the emails floating around from that home group this week where a family is going through something awful and we're praying for that family. And here's the group arranging, let's try and meet here, let's bring this food, I'll take over this role. You see how it works? There's a couple of families here got wind of the fact that Kat and I were hosting a new church family at the house. We were tired, we'd had a busy week. They said, how about we cook a meal for you and bring it round so you can serve it to them? What an amazing vision of the body operating with a resurrection mindset. As Kurt Cobain once sung, serve the servants. Isn't that funny? Why can't pastors be scriptural when Nirvana can be? That's terrible, isn't it? Get a similar idea in verse 15. I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, which, as we know, just means regular Christians. Verse 16, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. There are many fellow workers, many laborers, many servants in the church. And that's because there are many resurrectionists in the church. In a church where everyone serves everyone who serves, everyone serves everyone who serves everyone who serves. You see how serving inculcates and potentiates this kind of resurrection mindset. The pips are going, we've got to move on. Next, resurrectionists love. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy? was a much younger pastor than Paul. The whole church took on the role of encouraging this new pastor in his ministry. Think back to when we had a curate, Ben Wolpe, and uh, he came to us as an apprentice minister and started work here on the first day of ordained life. And in his first 10 months, he made 10 pastoral visits that I'd actually arranged for him to have. I called 10 people, 10 of you, some of you are in this room, who didn't really need a pastoral visit. I said, could you make one up? Could you have him round? And then he will practice on you. And then those 10 people called me and they told me how he'd done. Uh, usually very well. And uh, the reason why that happened, the reason why you got a curate, is because you are a resurrection church. You are an encouraging group of people to minister to. You're good at loving people. That's a Christchurch Fox Chapel Carrison, a very loving church. And now having been loved and encouraged, Ben, who left, is running his own church, and he's thriving there as well. Resurrectionists love. Like giving, 
like serving, loving inculcates and potentiates a church culture. Verse 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The scholar Brian Rosner says, the holy kiss was intended to reinforce the bond of love and peace. Don't forget that the Corinthian church has a history of conflict. Think about all those weeks we spent at the beginning of the letter looking at all of the fights in the church. And then think about all of those weeks we spent in the middle of the letter looking at all those difficult kind of social subjects where people were doing certain things and how much arguing there was and discomfort in that church. The fact that they're kissing each other when they meet tells us that resurrectionists forgive. It's very difficult to forgive. Forgiveness is hard. Women's group is reading that book on forgiveness. It's a tough read. But the only reason that any of us has a resurrection life in the first place is because in Christ Jesus, the Father has already forgiven you. You cannot grudge and judge and live a resurrection life. They're just not compatible things. That's the old flesh, that old judging and grudging. That's the old Adamic sin flesh finding a home in your new spiritual body. It just doesn't really belong. Corinth, the city, it ran on the power of the grudge. Who's up, who's down? Who's going to be able to manipulate who based upon who's got offended this week? Very much like our culture today. The Corinthian church, however, ran on the power of the resurrection. So resurrectionists, this is yins. Give, serve, love, and forgive. Four points. Five more to go. Of course, this side of eternity, resurrectionists disappoint. Your fellow resurrectionists are going to let you down. They're going to aggravate you. They're going to annoy you. They're going to upset you. They're not perfect. Resurrectionists fail. They forget stuff. They make mistakes. They make terrible decisions. They make bad calls. Sometimes resurrectionists sin. Other times, resurrectionists make great decisions. They're just not the ones you wanted. It looks like something like that's going on with Paul and Apollos in verse 12. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. You can just imagine, if you know anything about Paul, what a strong urging from him would have felt like. Probably fairly blunt, I should imagine. And then it says, but it was not at all his will to come now. So you can only imagine the amount of willpower that Apollos must have exercised in saying no to Paul. He will come when he has an opportunity. Resurrectionists listen. They discuss. They compromise. They negotiate. They give some ground. I'm going to call this point, resurrectionists agree. Resurrectionists try to find some way to to live at peace with one another and agree. Uh, By the way, I'm very keen on the biblical literacy of my children. And uh, when I preach verses like this, it worries me a bit because I know that later on this week, I'm going to hear a version of this verse. Uh, Kids, get in the shower now. Well, I'm afraid it's not at all my will to shower now, Father, but I will shower when I have the opportunity. And uh, they do this to me, by the way. They've figured out I like the Bible and if they... 
twist scripture like that, I'll somehow let them off. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with this sense of, of pride in their biblical literacy along with annoyance that they're in subordination. It unsettles me. I am encouraged, though, by the fact that at the end of whatever it was they were doing, Paul and Apollos, Paul regards Apollos as a brother. Not an enemy, but a brother. We're going to be a resurrection-shaped church with lots going on, lots of gifts, lots of serving, lots of zeal, lots of ideas, lots of action, and lots of activity. We're simply not always going to get along. We're not always going to get our own way. That's not going to be possible. But resurrectionists seek to agree with each other wherever they can. The pips, moving on. What about conflict with those outside of the body? That may be a little different. Look at verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Be vigilant. Persevere. Hold your ground. If you stand up for Christ, inevitably you will need to stand up against those who hate him. You want to back down to fellow believers wherever you can. You want to give way to brothers and sisters in the church as much as humanly possible, but not to enemies of the cross. That's a very different attitude. Resurrectionists resist. Uh, don't please be put off by the phrase, act like men. Uh, it is from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, it applied to the whole Israelite nation, not just the adult males, but it was a battle cry. That's what it was. It was a let's go to war. This strong language is letting us know that not everyone we meet will appreciate the good news. And especially where the good news threatens power, that is where we're going to expect someone or something to come against us. See in verse 9, Paul says there are many, how do you say this word? Ad ad adversaries. Is that close? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, adversary. Yeah, sorry. Uh, adversary? I don't know. It's uh, one of those words that trips me up, like uh, Isaiah. Forgive me. There's a reason, isn't there, why every single oppressive regime comes with the Christians. It's like one of the first things they always do. Let's machine gun the Christians. That's what they always do. You know, you two things about Bloody Sunday, and it really irritates me because the first one was done by Lenin where he shot all the priests. The power of the resurrection, however, is greater than any power of hell or scheme of man. Oppressive regimes are always going to come against resurrectionists, but resurrectionists have the power of God. Verse 9, Paul also says, a wide door for effective work has opened up for me. It's pretty weird, isn't it? Like I'm being attacked on all sides. The regime is coming for me. And guess what? An opportunity has arisen to share yet more of the good news. It's not going to be easy. Resisting. Christian resistance is Christ-like resistance. You might take some wounds for standing up for Jesus, just like Jesus took for you. But think about the resurrected Jesus for a moment. Think about the risen Lord, what he looked like. When he appeared to his disciples, he showed to them the wounds. And he said, you can touch them if you want. Like him, many of us will enter into glory wounded. Or at least worn down by the work. Tired. 
resurrectionists die. But those battle scars become beauty spots in the resurrected flesh. Signs of glory, things that point to Jesus, things to praise God about. They're badges of honor. And that's because in the end, though resurrectionists die, resurrectionists live. Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The Greek word there is anathema, anathema. Uh, The anathema was an object that could not be redeemed. The uh, anathema was under a curse. It was a word that was used of uh, sacrifices that had been nailed up in some kind of shrine and could not be removed. Uh, Anyone outside of the church is anathema. Uh, Anyone is irredeemably cursed and, and, and dead already. The thing is, once... Every one of us in this room was anathema. We could not redeem ourselves. But Christ was accursed for us. Christ was nailed up for us. And so we have been redeemed by him. Though he died, he rose from the dead. And he will return to judge the living and the dead. Verse 22, our Lord come. There's another battle cry. An extraordinary prayer, isn't it? When you think that we were anathema to God and we're asking the judge to come and judge us, we can only pray such a crazy prayer with such boldness and expectation and hope because of grace. We're no longer anathema because Christ became that for us. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Not the judgment, but the grace. What awaits for those in Christ is even more grace. Grace upon grace. This grace that we receive inculcates and potentiates a whole life of grace. It is by grace alone and the power of the resurrection that resurrectionists do anything at all. Phone call's about to be cut off. We've got nine points. Resurrectionists give, serve, love. Forgive, disappoint, agree. Resist, die, and live. Amen.